Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And if any person do refuse duly to abjure these wicked preachings, the sheriff of the said county shall be personally present at the passing of sentences by the diocesan against such persons and cause them to be burned before the people in a conspicuous place, that such punishments may strike fear into the minds of others, so that no wicked doctrines or their supporters may in any way be tolerated. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 141, which is named after the 1401 statute from which this text comes. Heretics shall burn, or in Latin, de heretico comborendo. This week I'm going to catch up with the progress of the Lollards, and then it occurred to me, hey, what about a quick whirl around the history of heresy in Europe up to this point? And I saw that it was good. So that's what I'm going to do. It's interesting to reflect, which to my embarrassment I hadn't really done before, that the concept of orthodoxy is not necessarily a part of every religion. The Danes, for example, didn't arrive in England demanding that everyone worship Odin and his six-legged steed, or Thor and his goats. But Christianity inherited the idea of orthodoxy from Judaism, and in the early days that made for a deeply uncomfortable series of accusations and bickerings in the early church, more reminiscent of a Monty Python sketch than with the dignity of the Holy Fathers of the Church. But then along came Emperor Constantine. The official story is that Constantine's conversion to Christianity and the adoption of it as the official religion of the empire came around from a miraculous vision. Well, maybe that's so, maybe it ain't. But what we can guess is that the miraculous vision and adoption of a single state religion was exactly what your average control freak for an emperor was looking for a feature of the late Roman state, which survived with the Eastern Empire until very late, was the closeness of the relationship between church and state. We're used these days to separation. We have become used, general listeners, to the constant struggles of the church and monarchs, even in England, to define their relationship and who wore the trousers in said relationship. Well, in the Roman Empire, church and state worked hand in hand, both insisted that a properly authorised synod produced a judgment on a matter of doctrine. And once they'd done that, every man, woman and child was required to dutifully nod their heads, tug at their forelocks and get on with believing. And from 1382, after Emperor Theodosius passed a law, if you didn't so tug and nod, your heresy was punishable by death. In a distantly forgotten phrase of my youth, this is heavy banana. Now again, steeped as I am in the medieval world from producing a podcast for the last four years, I've got used to the idea 
of the unity of Christendom under the leadership of a Roman Pope. But let it never be said that heresy itself was not a tradition that made the Church work hard right from the very beginning for its orthodoxy. So even at that early time, there were two sects already who differed radically from the accepted Catholic view. There were the Montanists. They claimed that perfect Christians actually became God. This was not acceptable, so they had to go. Then there was a chap called Marcion, who taught that the vengeful God of the Old Testament was not the same as the nice God who'd sent his son to tell them this, and to tell them the real story, and connect them with the real God. But the most long-lasting and influential of the heresies of the early church would probably be that of a third-century man called Mani. He borrowed from the Marcionites, and he borrowed from the Zoroastrians of Persia in basing his theology on dualism, a fight between good and evil. In Mani's structure, there were the elect, a very small bunch who were saved. They couldn't work or own property, but that's okay, because the rest of the believers were called hearers, and they could never be saved, which was inconvenient, but they could look after the elect, which was convenient for the elect. Now, this doesn't sound like a particularly attractive selling proposition to me, but nonetheless, it seemed that people were buying it. St Augustine of Hippo, the defining early father of Catholicism, was, it turns out, an early convert, but turned to condemnation, and as we know from smoking, there's nothing so dedicated as a reformed heretic. By the 6th century, Manichaeism seemed to have run out of steam, but survived in pockets. Until the late 12th century, it cropped up big time in southern France and the Cathars, but we'll get to that later. In all of this, the role of the emperor in early times was interesting and reinforces the closeness of the link between church and emperor. The 4th century emperor, Constantius II, for example, had synod after synod, with bishops running around like blue-arsed flies, arguing through increasingly obscure details of dogma. In the East, the arguments between monophysites and polyphysites is almost impossible for somebody as simple as me to understand, but literally became one of the fundamental fault lines in society, even down to the horse racing. At these synods and in these debates, It's not the Patriarch of Constantinople that everyone laid their arguments in front of. It was the Emperor who would lay down the law and make the decision. But from early on, heresy was not just about matters of conscience and religious belief. It could be either a screen for something else or simply a political quarrel. Hence, the Donatists in the 4th century were described as a heretical sect but really owed more to the bishops of North Africa objecting to the imposition of a bishop they didn't want from far away. Large-scale heretical movements very much depended on the support of the establishment, or at least the support of the landed and powerful. So that might be more forthcoming if it suited their purposes. So for the Counts of Provence in the 12th and 13th centuries, for example, the Cathar heresy had a dangerous appeal building a sense of separate identity away from the centralising tendency of the king in Paris. In the 5th century, of course, the Western Empire was swept away, and Catholicism turns practical, or at least it did in the West. In the East, where the Roman Empire survived, they keep on scratching each other's religious eyes out over the most minor points of detail, but in the West, in the face of the pagan barbarian challenge, suddenly the church is less demanding, and focuses less on fighting itself, 
and more on converting the pagan, which does seem like a sensible strategy, does it not? But it really is just a change of emphasis, not a change of heart. And we pick up examples through the centuries. For example, late 6th century Gregory of Tours wrote about a local man who was driven potty by a massive swarm of bees and disappeared off deep into the forest to become an ascetic away from society. When a couple of years later he reappeared, dressed in skins and accompanied by a woman called Mary. His claim was pretty straightforward. Not something requiring detailed nitpicking debate. He was, he said, the Messiah, and everyone should please prostrate themselves before him. And would you Adam and Eve it? People did, on the delivery of a few miracles. Before you could say social revolution, a creed of robbing the rich to give money to the poor had appeared as part of their credo, and an army of 3,000 believers were marching towards the nearest big town, Le Puy. The bishop there, Aurelius, might have considered the use of rational argument to talk round the 3,000 believers, but actually things were simpler in those days. He found himself a bunch of Orthodox Catholics who just happened also to be burly. The group of burly Catholics managed to get themselves well positioned around the new Messiah and one of them pretended to prostrate himself in front of him, clasping him enthusiastically round the knees. While the new Messiah was thus immobilised, the other burly Catholics chopped the Messiah into small pieces. Mary, meanwhile, was put to torture and confessed all the various tricks the new Messiah had used to produce the new miracles. It's a nice example illustrating a couple of points, I think. We now have a third reason for heresy. We've got religion, politics, and now a search for personal power. The other is that the church is already very happy to use violence and torture to maintain its position. But that is a statement that does need to be qualified. I don't know about you, but when I imagine medieval heretics, witches and wizards, I think of a stake, a big mound of sticks and a warming hot fire. But until we get to the 15th century, by and large, the church and churchmen did their very best to persuade heretics to recant, and torture and burning were very much a last resort. And it has to be said that the church was not out of kilter with the opinion of its flock. So let's take the story of Clement and Everard, a sect that appeared in northern France in the early 12th century. The sect was not, by and large, in favour of priests. Or at least, when they said that the mouths of all priests were the mouths of hell, I'm assuming that suggests a certain amount of antipathy. I could be wrong. Though, to be honest, one of the things about the heresies we do know about is that since they were cloaked in secrecy, and since what we know about them comes from the Inquisition, or at very least, unsympathetic chroniclers, what they really believed was probably very inaccurately reported, and their crimes horribly exaggerated. So we know that Clement and Everard believed in imitating the lives of the apostles. They saw the Catholic Church as having invented a whole load of dogma and ceremony that was utter nonsense and nothing to do with Christ and his message. They were against marriage and generally ruled by a distaste of the material world. All of this is all very well, but it seems to inevitably lead, just like the Templars a couple of hundred years later, to accusations of sexual deviance, or at least sexual deviance in the medieval view. So, orgies in the presence of the king of hell, various activities with candles that could be described as non-compliant with the best rules of personal hygiene and health and safety practices. 
but who knows if all of this really went on. Anyway, the point of this, apart from bringing sexual candle practice into our podcast, is the end point where we get a glimpse of the attitudes of the good citizens of Soissons in France. So Clement and Everard inevitably ended up in front of the bishop, and actually initially did a rather good job, giving the bish the most orthodox religious answers, which suggests that they'd not been very well reported. But then came the trial by the water ordeal, and sadly, Clement floated, which wasn't the right outcome for a good Christian, so they were both chucked into the clink. Now, while the bish dithered and wondered what to do with them, the good burghers of Soissons, quote, In the interval, the faithful people, fearing weakness on the part of the clergy, ran to the prison, seized them, and having lighted a fire under them, burned them to ashes. My slightly laboured point is, don't necessarily imagine a vengeful church visiting fire and brimstone on its cowed and bullied congregation. The unity of Christendom thing is real, a shared and genuine belief in the teachings of a church that was integrated into daily life, and deviance was relatively rare, hence the violence of the reaction against it. Clément and Everard identify another element in the genesis of heresy, a reaction against the wealth and dogma of the church, a desire to return to the good old days of asceticism and simplicity, the days of Christ and his apostles. It's a theme of another 12th century heretic, Oud de l'Etoile in Flanders, who preached that the church was so corrupt that to take the Eucharist from the hands of a priest was meaningless. Oud, of course, ended up being burned in Rouen in 1148. It is, of course, a theme to be taken up by the Lollards, to whom will come before long, promise. Obviously, the big stories of heresy in medieval Europe were two that we've covered before, the Cathars of southern France and the Templars of the 14th century. It's actually difficult to see the latter, the disbanding of the Templars and the burning of the Grand Master, as anything other than politically and financially motivated, despite all the accusations of religious deviance. But the Cathars look very different. That looks like a heady mix of the whole load of stuff. There was clearly a very genuine religious belief in a Manichaean split between good and evil. There was a good deal of satisfaction amongst the people with the Catholic Church. So the Cathars held that since God was pure as spirit, then the God of the Church must be none other than the devil himself. Bernard of Clairvaux, the most famous preacher of the day, himself said that the reason for the heresy was dissatisfaction with the level of piety and the behaviour of the clergy. For over 60 years, the Cathars lived side by side with Catholics and won the support of the nobility because, hate it or loathe it, when they looked at the behaviour of priests and compared it to the behaviour of the Cathar perfecti, the behaviour of the Cathars looked a lot closer to the way God intended it. But of course, the resulting bloodbath of the Cathar crusade in the early 13th century was politically and financially motivated as well. A chance for the King of France to bring the Counts of Toulouse to heel a chance for the so-called crusaders to make a bundle by sacking the towns of southern France and save their souls into the bargain. As we arrive at the 14th century, the reaction to the wealth and worldliness of the church grew. The Bigar, or the Brethren of the Free Spirit, flourished in northeastern Europe for over a century, preaching poverty in reaction to the hideous spectacle of the popes in Avignon. 
Sadly, it has to be said that the spirits of the Brethren of the Free Spirit did turn out to be a little freer than possibly they ought. So the idea was that they considered themselves to be in a state of perfection without sin, which is handy, and therefore able to do everything that ordinary men could not. This included some nice stuff like having sex with anyone, anywhere, any time that they pleased, lots of nudity, taking food and drink whenever they pleased without paying for it, oh, and the right to kill anyone who tried to stop them. Finally, in 1372, the Inquisition got involved. The sect was condemned, its books burned in Paris, and a woman leader of the group burned at the stake, together with the corpse of a male associate. The reaction to the wealth and worldliness of the church is a theme that grows and grows, and the church's way of dealing with this not unreasonable viewpoint led it into the same kind of absurdities that had it declaring crusades on good Christian monarchs in the name of political power. The medieval church's ability to reform was limited. So Peter Waldo was a merchant of Lyon who was simply convinced that true Christians must live a life of poverty in imitation of the apostles and live strictly according to the Bible. He had parts of the Bible translated to the vernacular and yet despite the fact that the Waldensians clearly believed in many of the same things that the Franciscans did, nonetheless they fell foul of the Pope and were excommunicated in 1182. They fled to the mountains of Piedmont and Switzerland and for three centuries would be persecuted for their beliefs. There's a familiar theme here. In its refusal to accept ideas that didn't come from within the church, the church made enemies of reformers. But maybe it could have used its ideas. From 1182, the Waldensians therefore preached against the church, calling it the congregation of the devil. They stood as an example to Jan Hus and to the Lollards, and when the Reformation finally came, there they were, ready to support the new religious groups in Geneva. Another slightly absurd example was in the Franciscans, guardians originally of the Christian ideal of poverty and simplicity. But maybe it was inevitable that as time went by, the order acquired massive gifts and grants, and at least corporate wealth. And so again the purity of St Francis's vision became tarnished. But near the end of the 13th century, the Spirituals, a group within the Franciscan order, tried to make a return to that original vision and reform. But in so doing, they ran into trouble with the popes. The trouble for the pope was that if he accepted the assertion of the spirituals that Christ and his apostles held no property whatsoever, that would cast doubt over the church's right to have all those lands and gold and silver and riches and palaces, and we couldn't have that, could we? So after many years of trying to reconcile the two parties, in the end the pope came down hard on the spirituals, suppressed their order, and had the most obstinate turned over to the Inquisition, of whom four were burned. That didn't end it by any means, but by the mid-14th century, with more argument and disputation, the Pope had vigorously reasserted its right to gold and silver platters for the Pope's Holy Supper, and what have you. We are well ahead of ourselves, but it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that one at least of the causes of the end of the great unity of Christendom which the popes worked so hard to maintain was itself its own refusal to bend and reform enough. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And of course, no discussion of heresy would be complete without talk of the Inquisition. At first, the Inquisition was nothing more than a collective term for investigations carried out by the relevant bishop into heresy on their patch. But in 1230, the first permanent tribunal was set up by the Pope, and from 1250, the Holy Office, as it was called, became increasingly associated specifically with the Dominican Order of Friars. The original idea was to put an end to the injustices that came about from the confusing plethora of legislation about heresy. In fact, of course, it did anything but achieve that aim. And in 1252, the papal bull Ad Extirpanda allowed the Holy Office to use torture, which is not necessarily reassuring towards those haters of injustice out there. We're a long way yet from the auto de fe of the late 15th century. But nonetheless, if the Inquisition was in town, every male over 14 and every female over 12 had to swear an oath affirming their orthodoxy and promising to shop anyone they suspected of heresy. The procedure of the Holy Office used an old Germanic process of law that assumed guilt, so the people accused of heresy were not told who had accused them or allowed to defend themselves, and the only appeal to be made was to the Pope. Now, the reputation of the Inquisition in the Middle Ages is of a ruthless, fanatical organisation that caused a massive bloodletting, and it's a view not helped by Pope Gregory IX's direction that all convicted of heresy should be burned. In fact, the absolute number of people burned throughout the whole history of the Inquisition could be less than 10,000. But even if that's so, and it's got to be a tricky number to calculate, there's no doubting the fear and hatred the Holy Office aroused and the hideous injustice of it all. This is the way it worked. The Inquisitors arrived in town along with a cloud of fear and suspicion. The aim of the Inquisitors was to get convictions, and where their interrogations, for which read interrogations with the threat of, or followed by, torture, managed to extract what was laughingly referred to as a free confession, the result was usually followed by a conversion to orthodoxy and a penalty of life imprisonment. But there was a great deal of plea bargaining, if you gave the Inquisition a load of names and shot the guy you've always hated down the road, so why should you care anyway, then you might get your sentence reduced, or even quashed. But if torture didn't work, there were other ways. For example, the Inquisitors prepared a set of questions that were essentially unanswerable unless you had the brain the size of a small orbital satellite. Now obviously, many of these Inquisitors were driven by a fanatical desire to root out heresy and maintain the unity of Christendom. But when you hear that anyone that confessed had to forfeit all their possessions, a light comes on. Aha! Now it seems easier to understand. There could be other reasons too, of course. Here's a quote from Petrus Cantor in the 12th century Paris. Certain honest matrons, refusing to consent to the lasciviousness of priests, have been written by such priests in the Book of Death, and accused as heretics and even condemned by a notoriously foolish zealot for the Christian faith, while rich heretics were simply blackmailed and suffered to depart. 
Now, England had been a model of conformity to now. Basically, until Wycliffe came along, there's barely a sniff of heresy. There was one group of 16 in the mid-12th century who seemed to have come from Germany. They were indeed not treated well. Branded, beaten up and cast into the countryside with orders for no one to feed them, so that most of them died. The comment from one chronicler sums up why these punishments were so harsh and echoes those words from the Statute of De Heretico Comborendo. The pious harshness of these severe measures not only purged the Kingdom of England of the sickness that had crept into it, but also by striking fear into the heretics, guarded against any future outbreak. It explains why Wycliffe and the Lollards were such a shock to the system. England simply wasn't used to heresy. It had been so confident of its compliance that in fact England's kings consistently refused to allow the Inquisition against the wishes of the Pope. I think we left Lollardy with its eradication from the University of Oxford. The Chancellor of Oxford brought to heel Wycliffe thrown out of the university to die in obscurity, otherwise known as Lutterworth, in 1384. Lollardy never approached the critical mass needed to cause the kind of upheaval of the Reformation, mainly because they didn't have a king wandering around desperate for an heir. But it did prove stubborn. The Lollards had now lost their prophet, but they still had their leaders, the so-called Lollard Knights and the preachers that went underground from town to town. Then in 1395 a document was nailed to the door of the Parliament while it was sitting, to be called the Twelve Conclusions of the Lollards, It thundered that faith, hope and charity had been driven out of the church by the worldly wealth of the clergy, that priestly celibacy encouraged lust, that the priesthood bore no resemblance to the life of Christ, that the bread and the wine was transformed not at all during Mass. Now after Henry took the throne, heresy was an even greater threat to him than it had been to Richard. Henry was anyway deeply religious and orthodox, but he was also a usurper. He needed every shred of legitimacy the support of the church could give him, and no two-bit heretic was going to get in the way of that. Which brings us to a chap called William Sawtree. William Sawtree was a parish chaplain in Norfolk. He was a vigorous preacher, spreading an unusual message. He declared that he would rather venerate a living monarch, or the bodies of the saints, or a confessed and contrite man, than any crucifix. That priests should preach or teach rather than say canonical services, and that money used for pilgrimages would be better spent on the poor. Most significantly, he also held that real bread remained on the altar after the words of consecration, not the body of Christ. Before you could say De Heretico Comborendo, Sautry found himself in 1399 in the presence of Bishop Henry Dispenser, the Bishop of Norwich, who dealt so firmly with the Peasants' Revolt. He started off defiantly, but a few weeks later he was persuaded to abandon these beliefs, and he abjured them publicly at Lynn, and swore never again to preach or to hold them. Sawtree then moved to London, and despite his promises not to teach this stuff any more, it turns out he was a fibber as well as a heretic. So in 1401, he was hauled before a full convocation of the church at St Paul's in front of no less a person than Archbishop Arundel himself. What followed was typical of the kind of questioning of Lollards. Arundel questioned him closely and aggressively, trying to trick Sawtree into admitting his heresy. 
Sawtree responded with clever evasions and replies that could be interpreted several ways, and for several hours he avoided answers that could incriminate him. But Arundel was relentless, and he pushed him hard, and he pushed him harder for hour after hour. And eventually Sawtree could avoid him no longer. Following the consecration, he said, the bread at the altar, quote, remained true bread and the same bread as before. Arundel had won. He had his man and he had his example. William Sawtree was convicted as a heretic. He made no plea for mercy. Instead, he loudly prophesied imminent ruin for clergy, king and kingdom. On the 26th of February, he was ceremonially stripped of his priestly orders before a large congregation at St Paul's, to whom the Archbishop expounded the condensed man's offences in English. He was then handed over, a layman newly made, to the secular powers. His execution was authorised by direct royal command because there was no formal law yet, and soon afterwards he burned at Smithfield, quote, bound, standing upright to a post set in a barrel with blazing wood all around and thus reduced to ashes. I don't know why there was a barrel there, I have to confess. One theory might be that it was a merciful thing to make sure he succumbed to the fumes before he burned, but I could be wrong. Any thoughts or answers, please let me know. Anyway, the Lollards had their first martyr. Sawtree was reviled by orthodox chroniclers but honoured by his underground co-religionists. One such, William Amain of Bristol in 1429, called Sawtree a holy man worshipped in heaven, and Sawtree later figured prominently in Fox's Protestant Book of Martyrs. He was in all probability the first person burned in England for heresy, though there's an obscure reference to an Albigensian being burned in London in 1210 which is the only competitor for that particular accolade. So that brings us right back to the beginning, and De Heretico Comberendo, which in the Parliament immediately following Sawtree's execution made the burning of heretics legal, to make sure that next time everything could be more easily and quickly handled. Now, as you know, Archbishop Arundel was ousted from the Chancellorship in 1409, and so he then turned his attention back to heresy and Oxford University, where the embers of support for Wycliffe still burned. Between 1409 and 1411, Arundel completed the job he'd started before. A Bible in the vernacular was absolutely banned, and the idea of an open Bible available to all was finished. All signs of intellectual support for Lollards was removed. But at the very same time, the Lollard Knights were making their boldest political move yet. With Arundel removed from the post of Chancellor and Thomas Beaufort in his place, it was probably John Oldcastle who took the initiative to have a petition presented to the King at Parliament. There's no doubt that while Richard II and Henry IV were both pious and orthodox and relied heavily on the Church to support their reigns, they allowed an influential group of Lollard Knights close to them immunity from prosecution, and so that helped the sect survive. And so the petition came forward, and it proposed the confiscation of all the worldly wealth of the church to be returned to the crown. All the land the bishops held, all the land held by the monasteries would be returned to secular control. 
Now, this is just stunningly, wildly radical. And it's clever, too. Oldcastle and the Lollards knew that Henry was struggling for cash. This would give him an extra income of £20,000 a year. The Lollards made it all as mouth-watering as possible and worked through the figures. Look, King, they said, this would allow an extra 15 earls, 1,500 knights, 6,000 plus esquires, 100 new almshouses, 15 universities, 1,500 proper Wycliffeite priests living on meagre means as was proper. The world king would be your lobster. Plus also, the church would be restored to its proper apostolic state, the way it ought to be. At the same time, a separate petition was brought forward to practically nullify De Heretico Comberendo. Now on paper, this looks like a pretty good idea, but it had absolutely no chance whatsoever of succeeding. Even if he'd agreed with it, which he certainly did not, Henry couldn't afford to cast the church adrift. He needed its support more than ever. And he made his position quite clear, prohibiting any such proposal being brought before him again. And as for the petition to nullify De Heretico Comberendo, he remarked he'd prefer it was made harsher, not weaker. It was a complete defeat for Oldcastle and the Lollard. Now, on the other hand, they may have felt at least that they'd put an idea out into the public domain which might generate some interest amongst the great British public. Also, it seems possible at this time that Prince Henry, a friend of Oldcastle, could have been supporting them as part of a political play against the king. And therefore, maybe when he became king, that support would continue. But as far as reform through this parliament went, it was no dice. Archbishop Arundel may be out of political power, but as far as religious matters went, he was in complete control. And he decided it was time to make that clear. And so enter John Bradby. Bradby had just been arrested for saying heretical things. Funnily enough, it's transubstantiation again that was the flashpoint, an area where really Wycliffe was actually reasonably orthodox. Bradby, de Bradby denied the very possibility of the bread and wine turning to the bodden. Bradby denied the very possibility of the bread and wine turning to the body and blood of Christ, and laughed at the very idea of a priest's power to make it happen. John Riker he said, had as much a chance of making it happen. John Riker, referring to the good folk of Bristol who cleaned up the streets of Refuge and Pooh. The Bishop of, Wor the Bishop of Worcester who had interviewed him was at a loss. There was no point excommunicating him since, after all, Bradby thought the church sucked and wouldn't give a tinker's curse about being excommunicated. So the Bishop kicked it upstairs to Arundel. On the 1st of March, Bradby was brought into the hall of a London house of Dominican friars. Facing him were the assembled great and powerful men, men that a chap like Bradby would not have dreamed of ever meeting, both archbishops, the Duke of York and several bishops. Once again, Arundel led the questioning and Bradby was pretty clear. Transubstantiation was a load of baloney, the priesthood were powerless. He was taken out and locked up, but Arundel was in a struggle for the life of his church and he wanted a showdown. And so the full convocation of all the prelates of England and Wales was convened. Bradby was as obdurate as Arundel. In front of what must have been a pretty intimidating bunch, he declared that the Holy Sacrament was 
less than a toad or a spider, because they were at least living things. Shock, horror, and I suspect Arundel secretly raised a happy chair as he handed Bradby over to the secular authorities for sentencing, though, true enough, he did express a wish that he should not suffer death by burning. In fact, the approval of Bradby's execution, by burning, happened so quickly there is a real suspicion that it was actually already written and ready before the trial. There's no doubt Arundel was sincere in his religious beliefs and desire to eradicate heresy for the good of men's souls. But equally, it's highly likely that this was part of a wider political battle, Arundel versus Prince Henry, and that this was an expression of power and an execution of power. So men-at-arms chained Bradby to a barrel tied to a stake on a pillar of faggots. All around, men and women stared in horror or cheered and jeered the filthy heretic or just enjoyed the occasion, whatever. To everyone's astonishment, the prince turned up and he called on Bradby to renounce his heresy. Maybe this situation could still be turned around. But Bradby was made of the stuff of martyrs and he refused and so the fire was lit. As the prince stood in front of the pyre, Bradby began to burn and he began to scream. Take him off, ordered the prince, and the burning faggots were pulled away so that the prince could approach the burned man and again offer him a chance of escape. Renounce and I'll give you a full pardon and three pence a day for life. I cannot imagine, gentle listeners, the make-up of anyone who could have been partially burned, therefore understand the full horror of what they're going through, and in the face of that, maintain their really rather theoretical debate. I have to admit, shamefacedly, that I would pretty much have said anything at that point. But not John Bradby. John Bradby looked at the prince and the bishops straight in the eyes and told them nay. So the prince turned away, the faggots were replaced, and Bradby burned. So, that seems like a good place to stop. King Henry IV is dead. Prince Henry is to become Henry V. What will the rule of a young man, a new king, what will that bring? Will John Oldcastle and the Lollards find Prince Henry supportive when he becomes king? Or was his support as a prince just a political play against the old king? As you know, it will be a while before you find out more about all of that because I am taking something of a breather. But look, I will be back. So keep in touch through the website, Facebook, or just send me an email and say, hello, how's your father? Do keep checking the site and iTunes. I've already got a few ideas from people who'd like to send me some guest episodes on Roman Britain, on the story of the first contact between England and Japan, even on Christopher Columbus. So hopefully we'll have some stuff in the meantime to keep you all interested. Thanks to donators Pete, Douglas, Jabal, Amy, Oak, Mary, you monthly donators, thank you so much for your generosity and I shall miss the donations, I can tell you that. And finally, thanks to everyone for listening. It's all a bit emotional, but this is, of course, with supreme corniness, au revoir, not goodbye. So good luck, everyone, and have a good few months. <laughs>